You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuts. Hey, hey, friends. Listen, I have been hearing your cries, and I'm a uh, benevolent dictator. Uh, Rich Volodas was on the show back in February, and you guys loved him. Uh, we got really into differentiation of self. Uh, Rich himself um, is well acquainted with family systems theory because he's the lead pastor of New Life Church in New York City, the church that Pete and Jerry Scazzaro founded. So Rich got to step into that incredible world of, of emotional health and systems theory. What I love about Rich is he's done some of his own unique work on it. That's, you know, it's one of my favorite things about systems theory is the, the practitioners who take it and then adapt it. And so Rich is our guest today, our second ever returning guest. Rich, you're in rare air with uh, Chuck DeGroat, who's the other returning guest. Uh, the reason I wanted Rich on the show is he just released a book on spiritual formation called The Deeply Formed Life. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. Uh, let me just say this. Um, it's it's going to be one of your top three to top five spiritual formation books because everyone talks about holistic spiritual formation, but Rich, I think, is actually one of the first to actually go in places with formation that I've never seen in one book. So we'll get into that. But Rich, hey, welcome back, first of all. And then we've got a couple of topics we're going to hit before we get into your book. So thanks for joining me. Steve, so good to be here. And uh, after Chuck, I mean, what an honor. So thanks for having me back. Yeah. So, hey, two topics before the book. Uh, Politics, because hey, why not? (laughs) And um, the pandemic. You're a lead pastor in a pandemic, which makes you a resilient human being. Uh, I've noticed on Twitter particularly, you've been giving some really amazing political guidance, I think. This episode is actually going to drop after the election. My take is there's going to be a massive escalation in violence and conflict, whoever's elected. Give us your take as a pastor on Christians and politics right now. Well, I I, I preach and write from a congregation that is incredibly diverse, uh, racially, uh, generationally, economically, and politically. And so I'd say in the 2016 election, um, I'd say at least 40% voted for Donald Trump, 40% for Hillary Clinton, and others probably wrote in someone or just abstained altogether. And so I'm familiar just with the tensions uh, that exist, which are most uh, profoundly demonstrated on social media. Uh, And so what I've tried to do throughout this whole season that we're in is try to get a little beneath the surface as to what informs the way we see the world. And uh, at one point, um, I I tried to put together an iceberg, you know, our logo uh, for our church is the iceberg. And I... In meeting with a number of Trump supporters in our congregation and some Biden supporters in our congregation over Zoom, I it just became clear to me there are a lot of things that are informing our social engagement that usually doesn't get a lot of airtime. And whether we're talking about one's view of eschatology, whether we're talking about the distorted caricatures that are demonstrated on social media, whether we're talking about deep embedded fear or this cry for Christendom to uh, be returned. There's a lot of forces beneath the surface. And so I've spent a lot of time trying to, number one, locate these forces 
And so we can humanize one another. But it's been a very difficult task (laughs) to do uh, because of the emotionality that's connected to it. So it's been quite an interesting season, Steve, I think for not just for me, but I think for every pastor in this country. Yeah, I think it's actually oddly comforting that a church that puts so much emphasis on emotional health still has the struggles of people who it it almost feels like they, they have a thin veneer of Jesus and then a thick wall of political view or something like that. It's interesting. What grieves me most is on left and right, folks are able to articulate a political talking points much more articulately than the teachings of Jesus, Sermon on the Mount. And so they're able to say, here's the platform that this person stands on, but not do so with that kind of clarity about the Gospels and the New Testaments. That's been, that's grieved me. And it's been something that I've tried to come back to on a regular basis. The ability for politics to co-opt people into the, the maelstrom that it is, it's, it's a pretty powerful force. So uh, we have our work cut out for us for sure. Yeah, it's interesting as an Aussie, my impression as an immigrant is how much Americans put their hope in politics versus other countries, Mm. and then how much American Christians seem to really almost add God to the mix. It's so much pressure in this country. It is the civil religion aspect of Christianity. You know, I I think it was, uh, there's a book called God in Public. The author escapes me right now, Mark Toulouse. And he talks about iconic faith and how Christians, for that matter, uh, tend to be swayed by iconic faith. And iconic faith for him is the use of Christian language and symbols for political purposes. And it happens on left and right, probably more profoundly and pronounced on the right, because historically conservatism has been tied to Christianity. Uh, But I think it happens on both sides. It's a dog whistle for a lot of people where if you can hear God language, you make these assumptions and come to these conclusions. And so seeing Christianity as something distinct from the world can be very, uh, very challenging. So, I mean, I've witnessed it firsthand uh, over the past, not just four years, even beyond that. Yeah, Rich, I feel like you're one of the faith leaders that have thought pretty deeply about politics. Again, this is going to air after the election. What's your word to faith leaders on how to guide their congregations post-election? My advice, and it's, it's advice that I'm trying to live myself, is to really have a life with God that's rooted in prayer, rooted in self-examination, rooted in self-regulation. You know, I, I think more than anything, how I lead emotionally our congregation is going to make all the difference in the world. You know, anxiety, I mean, you're talking, you write a lot about anxiety, Steve. You know, we talk about the transmissibility rates of COVID. The transmissibility rates of anxiety is just as high or maybe even yeah, higher. Higher, yeah. I think the, the task for the leader is to be a non-anxious presence, is to have a life with God in prayer is to take a stand on certain things, especially that are reflective of what we believe the gospel to be teaching us. But I think that's the first thing. And then secondly, I think the hard work is to create an environment where deep listening can take place, which is what I've tried to do, not because I have sought it out, it, it has sought me out. <laughs> I have So people saying to me, Pastor Rich, can we have a conversation? I'm thinking, oh no. <laughs> but in those moments, I realize, wow, what a gift this is. So, I mean, our own self-regulation, our own life with God and creating a space where uh, what I've told people in our church is no matter who you vote for, you're welcome in our congregation. I also ask, however, that you would live a life of humility, curiosity, 
a life grounded in God, you know, seeing uh, our politics through Jesus and not seeing Jesus through our politics. And if we can do that, we can be a counterculture community, not perfect by any stretch. We're not going to agree with everything, but I think we can offer the world something different if that was our approach. So th- those are some of the things that I would say to leaders who are in the same boat as, as I am. Yeah, that's really great. All right. So it's been seven months since COVID showed up. Uh, I was really caught off guard in the early days for myself of how much my emotion and my mood wildly swung. Mm. I'm not generally prone to depression, for example, and I would get into a depression. I I remember one morning particularly waking up with a strong sense of paranoia, Mm. which I've never in my life had. That was several months ago. I I dug a little deeper and, and I'm feeling pretty good now, but a lot of faith leaders have really taken it hard. Like the... COVID pressures, I I think for those, particularly people in majority culture like myself, who were aware of racial injustice, it's like, it feels like the last few months have made us aware of how little we were aware of it, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and how much work there is to do. How have you been doing through COVID? How's your well-being? The first few weeks, I was going on full adrenaline in terms of how are we going to gather together. Um, Because we were doing live stream, we didn't have to make too many adjustments. But how are we going to have maintain meaningful connection, which was the phrase that I used for the first few months for our congregation, uh, maintaining meaningful connection. Uh, And so the first few weeks were a bit of a blur. I was just just going. And then uh, as I settled down a bit, I started hearing a lot of stories of members of our congregation who had family members who had died of COVID. We lost one of our staff members who was just a long, a porter in our church for forever, an older man. And so we started hearing stories like that. I started having nightmares regularly. Uh, I think that was just my subconscious at work and my anxiety coming to the surface and, you know, my most vulnerable moment in sleep. Uh, And so I I found myself very anxious for a couple of weeks, having bad dreams. And then slowly, uh, the gift of it was having some friends that I was connecting with on a regular basis, very intentionally, for about uh, each month, for about an hour and a half. Seeing a spiritual director from time to time was significant for me. So the first few months after that, it started settling a bit. And then I started coming across a new set of problems, which was, if we're going to return to worship, what is that going to look like? And so people, in terms of the percentages, in terms of masks, one of the biggest internal staff tensions was, you know, I was a bit indecisive about who should on the platform wear masks. Should everyone wear masks on the platform? And because of my indecision, it caused some conflict on the staff. And that was my, I, I own, totally own that. But I started finding myself uh, going back and forth with just feelings of anxiety because of the tensions, the unknowns, the indecisiveness. And it came to a point, I'll, I'll tie a bow on it with this here, Steve. I started noticing just, I could not get a satisfying breath for a number of days at different points throughout this seven, eight month pandemic why I couldn't get satisfying breaths is because I had all this anxiety stored in my body because of hard conversations that I needed to have. So uh, I, I'd say that explains a lot of my own personal journey. Um, I think I've led relatively well. Uh, at the same time, there's been some indecision that has caused misunderstandings and hurt among our staff in particular, but we're pressing on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of, I, I've noticed in leaders, if we've never done something before, we still expect to get an A our first time. Yeah. <laughs> and 
Th- that that's what I'm hearing is like it's it sounds like you actually totally knocked it out of the park. Like just some indecision. Like we we're still we're seven months into ambiguity and and not just ambiguity, but shifting ambiguity, right? Like mm-hmm. we thought we were starting to get a path and things are changing. Yeah, I'm pretty hard on myself. I, I had a wonderful session with the therapist a couple of weeks ago who reminded me of Rich, you you've done a pretty good job. Yeah. And uh, so give yourself a lot of grace, which I've tried to do in recent weeks for sure. Yeah. Well, let's let's chat the book because um you know, as you know, Rich, I'm chatting to so many faith leaders right now, and uh, the majority of them are not well. And mm. and I think what's going on, this is my take, I, I may be wrong. It reminds me of when I was a chaplain, the emergency room would just reveal what was going on in a family. It wouldn't create it. Mm. You know, So if a family's tense, then in crisis, they're really tense. And if they're tight, they're really tight. It feels to me like COVID has revealed the emotional and spiritual health of pastors and exacerbated it. And so in my opinion, we actually all need to be digging a little deeper. Um, You know, you shared your story. I've got this amazing, I have the incredible privilege of having an executive pastor who's a a dear friend of mine. And he's amazing. And we were chatting like two weeks ago. So what is that? Six and a half months in. And both realizing that both of us had eliminated our rhythm of retreat. Mm. We just knuckled down like we're rebuilding a church from scratch it feels like we're planting a church again and we were both like saying oh why why have we done that why because we're applying more of the same and try harder and Mm. getting anxious and um so we both committed to find some way to retreat and break away and that's what i've been telling pastors lately the other thing i've been telling pastors is to be proactive Mm. Is, is rather than spend your anxiety build some health that's that's what I want to get into in Deeply Formed Life. I, I know most of our listeners have plenty to do. I'm going to invite our listeners to grab the book and prioritize it because it's a way... It's actually, Rich, you actually give us really tangible tools in every chapter. You give us these categories and you diagnose, but then you give us these practices mm-hmm. to actually build emotional and spiritual health that to me, it feels like we're building a bank account. I don't know if you meant it that way, but what's your reaction to that summary? My my hope was to make uh, the book accessible to everyone in very uh, daily ways, and I, I, did, I just didn't want to give theology. I'm writing for primarily for my congregation of people who I love and see and know their stories. But yeah, it's a good way of saying it, uh, Steve. Building that bank account for sure. There's a lot of practices for sure. So I, I don't want. I hope folks don't get overwhelmed by it. The goal is not to master all the practices by any means. Right. Uh, but to give some handles as to how is our faith to be lived out moment to moment. So, but I, I like that analogy for sure. All right. So here's a quote that you wrote uh, early on in the book. You're talking about pace of life. Our world continues on faster and busier. We're reminded that our souls were not created for the kind of speed to which we have grown accustomed. Thus, we are a people who are out of rhythm, a people with too much to do and not enough time to do it. Tell us a bit about that. You know, I write these things from my own struggle, uh, and and I write these from the the own my own internal demands that I place on myself. I live in New York City, city that never sleeps. Uh, things are always active, uh, and so in in writing this, you know, I, I talk about in the book there is an encounter I had with with a Jewish family who were getting ready to head to synagogue, and the guy frantically hunts me down the street and says, hey, can you help me? I need to get my mother 
out of the apartment, which was a very strange thing, but I thought New York City, whatever. So I, I, I try to help the guy and he refused to press the elevator buttons. And I started realizing, okay, today's the Sabbath. And his mother, who was 90 years old, 90 plus years old, this frail looking woman, very well dressed. She just talked about how busy she was when she, with her walker, how busy she was. And she was lamenting the pace of life. And I'm thinking, this is a 90 plus year old woman heading to synagogue on the Sabbath. And then I looked at her, I thought, she's a picture of my life as well, <laughs> in which the pace of our lives, you know, we have, I write about Sabbath and the people of God for 400 years under a particular pace of life. And even when they get delivered from Egypt, there was this internal Pharaoh uh, that they had to wrestle with. And we have an internal Pharaoh as well who says, if you stop working, you're going to die. And so I'm very familiar with that voice. And it's one that requires very strong habits and practices to resist. So Steve, I write out of my own struggle to be still and to find a rhythm that's sustainable. And I think I've made lots of great progress in the process, but I still have lots of residue of kind of that pharaoh on the inside. Uh, but I, I, yeah, we, we need a different pace for sure. Yeah, you know, we, we focus so much on what COVID has taken from us. It feels like there are gifts in COVID if mm. we can find them. Isn't one of them the opportunity to slow down? What Has COVID benefited you and your household and your pace in any way? It really has. What I have found interesting is it, not just in terms of prayer and in terms of, you know, when I'm not commuting now to work or anywhere else. So there's just been a lot of time to be where I'm sitting right now in our bedroom, on our couch, in our, in our chair here. I've discovered that because people have our home, they are more open to spending time with God if they were guided in this way. What I learned in the first five months of the pandemic, I led a midday prayer three times a week on Instagram and on Facebook. And a few hundred people would join, uh, you know, with both of those things combined. And I was surprised how many people wanted to pray. Uh, they just needed a little bit of guidance. And I learned very quickly about the power of community and prayer. And I've, I can't tell you how many text messages and emails I've gotten from people who, after I stopped doing it, you know, about five months into it, I said, all right, we're taking a break now. People started emailing me saying, it's been so hard now to pray because there was something about the communal rhythm of being with God that opened people up to God. But I do think you're right. That's been one of the gifts of a, a longing to get connected to God in these particular moments. But community has been such an important aspect of that for me. Yeah. And I wonder if that's actually already answered what I'd plan on asking you next. Let me throw it out there, Rich, and see if what we get out of it. I, you have this very simple quote. And um, the, the troubling reality is that believers can be deeply committed to being Christian without ever being deeply formed by Christ. Mm -hmm. if, if our listeners are listening to this and saying, actually, I, I wonder if that describes me, what would be a, a couple of next steps that you'd say they take to actually substitute the formation of Christ for the kind of Christendom vision? Yeah, it's, it's easy to, to be a Christian and not follow Christ. <laughs> and by that, I mean, it's, it's easy to go through the motions. It's easy to do the things you're supposed to do, uh, but without giving God access to your, your soul. So for me, what I'm getting at is it is that subterranean approach to spirituality where I'm giving God access. You know, Robert Mulholland 
He was a professor at Asbury Seminary. He's written a number of books on spiritual formation himself. He passed away a few years ago. But he said there's two ways of being in the world. You could be in God for the world or you can be in the world for God. I think when it comes to being a Christian, it's often that latter uh, case where we are in the world for God. And we have the issues that we think God is concerned about. We have our banners that we raise that often creates uh, some form of uh, divisiveness in the world. Um, But the goal is not to be in the world for God. You can do that without God. The goal is to be in God for the world. And for me, that is very simply opening yourself up and, you know, to God and allowing God to access and yourself to access some of the things that are beneath the surface. So, I mean, Christ is not just after our behavior modification. He's after our deep transformation, the deepest longings, the deepest fears, the deepest idols that reside in us. And um, to be formed requires us to, to that kind of subterranean introspective life. So that for me is the big difference. Yeah. In the book, you actually lay out uh, five kind of practices and values. Uh, We'll probably have time to cover two. I think I'm just going to read all five, if that's okay. Contemplative rhythms, racial justice, interior examination, sexual wholeness, missional presence. I think my favorite part about the book is it, it feels like you've poured... Uh, I'm, I'm metaphors on the spot, <laughs> not my best thing. I went and got an MRI several years ago, and I had to drink a chalky... Uh, yeah, the contrast. The contrast. And you can almost feel it going through every part of your body. That's what this book felt like to me, is that you're just Mm. climbing into every aspect of my interior world. Because I think with what you just described, most people would say, oh, that's the third section, interior examination. I love that you brought two that I haven't seen talked about much that are essential racial justice, sexual wholeness. Mm. Uh, I wonder if we could just cover those. I love with racial justice, you came right out of the gate you share your own story, 2019, uh, the African-Americans in your church having to meet with you and you having to learn. Um, I love that you talked about your ambivalence over the word reconciliation, racial reconciliation. Uh, help us understand why you're ambivalent about that word. Yeah, I'm ambivalent about it because that word has often come to mean things like diversity. Uh, it's, it's reduced matters of race to aesthetics. I've seen it used in ways that, you know, it's now a heart issue, it's a relational issue, and missing out some of the larger uh, components that racial justice encompasses. So for me, like to talk about racial justice means we have to talk about it individually, interpersonally, and institutionally. Reconciliation is often uh, relationally based, which I think is incredibly important but it's missing some of the larger public and institutional and systemic realities that uh, mark our world. So for me, my ambivalence is not that I don't think it's a good word. It's a theological word. It's a, a very important word. But I think in the context of race, it's a very limited word. So I share it with ambivalence because I think there is something larger at work in terms of what Christians are to give themselves to, to see the kind of to be the kind of people that God has called us to be in this world. Yeah, I'm in a predominantly white church, and I've been surprised that some of the folks who don't believe that systemic racism exists, for example, Mm -hmm. um, what would be your guidance for people? Like, there's a point where I think at some point you're just willfully not looking, you know? 
one of the, one of the most common things I've heard is people say, "Well, it's outlawed. You know, it's no longer legal, mm. but it's still actual." How would you help somebody take some blinders off there? Yeah, when I'm sp- specifically talking to Christians, I have a really, I, I want to call it a high theology of sin, but I take sin very seriously. Yeah. And if sin is the power that it is, it doesn't just infect our individual lives, it's pervasive. It infects our interpersonal relationships. It, in, it infects every aspect. Of, it, it is pervasive, every aspect of society. And so I do find it curious that it's often Bible-believing Christians who have a high theology of sin and take sin seriously seem to limit it when it comes to now individual and uh, systemic uh, realities. You know, Reinhold Niebuhr, he wrote a book called Moral Man and Immoral Society. And his premise of it was, he said, if he could rename it, I think it's in the preface, he should have called it Immoral Man, Even More Immoral Society. But his the premise is, you see an individual, you know, walking down the street for the most part, they're good people, a good person. But how is it possible that they gather with other people and something is drawn out of them that you would never encounter if you saw them and conversed with them one-on-one? And that is that not just a group mentality, but the larger forces at work of sin, that when you get a bunch of people together and then you combine matters of power together, systems are created. Uh, So for me, I think I have conversations with people on sociological levels. I just want to go theological first with people and say, how seriously do we take sin? Is sin as pervasive as you say it is? And if it is, then that means it must extend to the larger institutions and systems of our world. So from there, you can get to sociological data and research and language and such. But for me, I think we can begin uh, and make lots of progress with just a theological lens to talk about sin and the way it manifests. I, I think one of the things that we continue to grapple with, I, I've been at this church 15 years, how do we care about things that either don't affect us personally mm. or even worse, benefit us? Mm-hmm. I think to your point, the gospel is the good news because it compels us to care about people and systems that actually benefit us. But I think that's the struggle it is that pro- it is the lack of proximity. It is the. I mean, I just think about this for a moment. I haven't done my much. I don't have much data on this personally, but from what I have observed on social media around the issue of masks, for example, I've noticed that some of the people who I know that are averse to wearing masks have not known anyone who has died or been significantly ill. And there's that lack of proximity. Whereas for me, I could give you a list of five, six names right now of people that I know who've died. It is that proximity to pain that enables us to maybe see things in a different light. But to your point, when it comes to race, when it comes to systemic sin and how sin plays out in the world, it's often our lack of proximity and our distance that shapes us more than anything else. And so now we're shaped more by our distance than we are by our theology. And I I think that's, you know, it's a very real problem for sure. Yeah. You move into the racial habits, you call them, and you actually list many. I I just want to hear about three. You you talk about remembering, intentional listening, and renouncing whiteness. Why don't we just take those one at a time? Yeah, when it comes to remembering, I think every Christian uh, needs to be somewhat of a historian, and you don't need to get a degree in it. But I, I think, you know, remember is an important biblical word. God has his people remember a lot. Uh, remember where you've come from. Remember, you know, there's a lot of remembering in the Bible. And 
you know, to talk about our society many ways. I mean, I, I like to talk, I like to connect the genogram, Steve, to our understanding of racial history, where who I am today is, you know, it's, it's, it's the fruit of what I have inherited from my family of origin, the patterns, the trauma, the scripts that have been handed down consciously or unconsciously. I am the product of that. And by God's grace, I've worked to undo some of the more negative legacies that I've inherited. But if that's true for me, that I am the product of a family system, uh, you know, how much more true would that be for an entire nation? We have a, a history and we live that residue. We were seeing the residue of that history lived out. So for me, li- uh, remembering history is about we just didn't get here. The world wasn't organized the way it's been just overnight. We are seeing the, a long process uh, and history being unfolding before our eyes that centuries in the making. So I I think on some level, Christians need to be historians. It's interesting to see the connection that some folks have, their own reticence to looking at the past and their ability to deny the present. I think those two things are, you know, correlate with one another, because the more you're able to look honestly about the past, the more you're able to see clearly about the present. So that's the first one, remembering. Yeah. The second one, incarnate the listening piece, you know, to talk about race, and I'll just, this is not in the book, and I'm wondering whether this should be book number two, uh, Steve, where to talk about the many, I think there's at least six layers of race to talk about. So before I even get to the incarnational listening part, I mean, to have a robust, comprehensive conversation, I I think we need to talk about matters of race theologically, historically, sociologically, ecclesiologically, politically, and formationally. And so I I think we need all that to have a robust, comprehensive conversation and move forward in our local churches, in our society. Uh, So I, I say all that to say to properly situate listening, because it's often the case people think just listen to someone and that's all you need to do. No, the listening is to lead to action, uh, embodied action in our local spaces. And then how can we participate in the, for the common good in, our, in the larger society that we're in? But, in? but listening for me is about leaving your, this is incarnational, leave, leaving your world and entering into someone else's world. Uh, you know, pulling, putting your story to the side and hearing somebody else's story and allowing yourself to be shaped by their story without you losing yourself. That's good differentiation. When I talk about it, I think we all need to listen, but the important nuance that I uh, name in the book is those who have benefited from social power are to lead the way in listening first and and more often. And I think that's a Christ-like way of, this is a Philippians 2, Christ-like way of being in the world. So we must all listen to each other in this situation. You know, who has benefited from power? Men need to be listening more to women. Those who are, uh, you know, upwardly mobile economically need to listen to the poor. Uh, white people need to listen to, uh, you know, uh, you know, black indigenous people of color. So I think that's, for me, that's a Christ-like way of being in the world incarnationally. And then whiteness, you know, I've gotten myself in some trouble at my church, Steve, talking about this, and I've tried hard to make a distinction between white people and whiteness as an ideology. And whiteness, you know, Willie James Jennings talks about it being the measure, the yardstick by which everything else is positioned and situated. So uh, whiteness is about uh, naming the false standards, the false hierarchies that are created in, in terms of social norms, in terms of values, in terms of practices, in terms of viewpoints, perspectives that create an unnecessary and a false hierarchy and an illusory hierarchy. You know, growing up, I would think if I just moved into a white neighborhood, I would have made it. Or if I received affirmation from 
white people. That somehow is better. It's very insidious the way it works. But the, the, the road to racial justice and reconciliation is to remove the hierarchies that's often um, find its mark by why whiteness and, and the proximity to whiteness. And so the closer someone is to whiteness, the more valuable they are. The closer someone is to blackness, the less valuable, the, the, you know, so that's the spectrum that we live on. And to renounce whiteness, that's the language that I use, is really to do away with the scale in its entirety, uh, which is a very hard thing to do in our racialized society. I think this is why I'm so glad you included these thoughts in a spiritual formation book, mm. because it, it is where often those of us who are white immediately feel the most threatened. Mm. And instead of examining why we feel threatened, we just react, you know, defensively or... Yeah. It, it's fascinating to me that a lot of your racial habits really are actual practices of differentiation of self. Mm. Uh, listening posture would be one of the top ones, right? Of noticing your own reactivity based on how you're listening. Yes. Yeah, I, you know, I, I kind of knew Rich um, would be short on time because I have the same impression that I had the first time you were on. It's just you've, you've thought about these things to a depth and you've practiced them to a depth that I think is why we're following you on this. I do want to talk about sexual wholeness. I love that you gave yeah. a chapter to it. I love that you open with Prince. How can you go wrong? <laughs> As the model of twisted sexual understanding in an incredibly mm. musically gifted genius. It's just mm. wild. But um, a, a couple of things. You, you mentioned the three diets that we put ourselves on, starvation, fast food, and banquet. Would you just flesh those out for us? Yeah, I, I've done a lot of reading on uh, John Paul II's Theology of the Body, and um, which I found to be a really uh, richly theological uh, work. And out of that, uh, there's a gentleman named Christopher West who's, who's also specialized in this area. And so uh, I'm riffing off of his, these categories where the starvation diet is really the diet of the church uh, and religious people that's marked by repression and suppression, which we see, I, I think, profoundly in the evangelical Pentecostal charismatic world where to even talk about sexuality is very difficult for people to do. We had an emotionally healthy conference a couple of years ago. We were talking about marriage and sexuality. And I remember Jerry Scazzaro saying from the platform, the words penis and vagina. And uh, the I could just tell in the room, there was the body, people started shifting, their bodies started <laughs> shifting, people started looking at each other. It became like a middle school kind of feel in the room. Yeah. And I'm thinking, here we are, pastors and leaders in this space, and we can't hear the words penis and vagina without uh, becoming middle schoolers. And it just shows our level of discomfort to talk about matters of sexuality. And so it's marked often by repression and suppression. And the challenge with that is you can only go so far repressing things. Uh, it's going to come up in some way or another. Uh, people are going to act out. And so that's that first diet. The second diet is if the first one is marked by repression, the, the fast food diet is marked by reduction. It is reducing all of life or the highest, you know, the highest good in life to the satisfaction of my physical desires. And so the fast food diet, it, there's a lack of discernment with our bodies. It's whatever I want to give myself to, I'm going to give myself to. But because there's when there's a lack of discernment with that, uh, like too much fast food, it makes you sick. And so that's the fast food. But really, the invitation is to the banquet. And the banquet is uh, a recognition that our spirituality and sexuality are to be connected. Uh, and it does not mean the banquet does not mean that necessarily that someone is 
sexually active in, in, in the proper context and such. But it does mean that uh, there is a holistic way of integration. You know, Marva Dawn talks about the difference between a social sexuality and a genital sexuality. And Jesus never experienced a genital sexuality, but he was fully human, the most human you'll ever see. And he knew how to connect his sexuality to his spirituality. So the invitation for us is to very simply do that. And the book outlines just some ways that we can begin to normalize the conversation and move forward, looking at our own estrangement that we have with our bodies, with our histories, with our anxieties, and to try to find a better way forward, whether we're single or married. Yeah, I think it was Dan Allender that says that every one of us is sexually broken. And Mm. the sooner we can come to terms with that, the more opportunity for transformation and healing and Uh, You share some of your own journey in here. I love that you have a habit of asking the simple question of when somebody was first exposed to sexual desire. Yeah. And and I don't know that people think of that as a spiritual formation question. Mm. Talk to us a bit about that. Much like, I mean, much like race. I mean, we, we all have our own histories and the ways that we have been introduced to our understandings of sexuality have a way of now deeply forming us in, in, in ways that simple Bible verses and prayer meetings don't necessarily get at. So, I mean, when I, when I talk about one's sexual brokenness, I, I do want to go back to what are the messages? Who has formed you? And these, these things go very deep, often because they're, they're found in our childhood uh, at some of the most formative moments of our lives. Which is why I think whether we're talking race, whether we're talking about uh, family systems or genogram work or sexuality, helping people to unearth uh, the various uh, messages and practices and theology that they've inherited, particularly at young ages. And I mean, I mean, my children right now are getting messages. I think that's, you know, it's, it's returning to the scene of the crime in some respect mm. and trying to uh, do the kind of introspection and unearthing and undoing in the name of Jesus uh, the ways that we have been improperly formed. So, yeah, I, I mean, in my book, whether we're talking about race, whether we're talking about our emotional life, whether we're talking about our sexuality, looking within and looking backwards is really an indispensable aspect to finding the kind of wholeness that we long for. Yeah. Yeah, the final question on that, and uh, then we'll get to our gauntlet. I love how you define sobriety, particularly because I, I think the amount of people that pornography has gripped really through the internet. Like I, I'm of, I'm 48. I'm of an age where you had to go find it or someone had to give it to you or you had to buy it. And so I, I came to adulthood before it was so prevalent. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think your, your definition of sobriety is, is very gracious. It's not so much about abstinence and willpower. It's primarily about honesty. Yeah. Talk to yeah. us about that. I understand the struggle, and I think um, most people do, where there's a, a, there's a deep root of shame uh, that takes place in addicts. And, and I mean, we, we have an NA group that uh, we rent out space to every Monday when we were gathering together. And I would sit in from time to time and just hear them and stand by the doorway where, uh, you know, sometimes 20 to 30 people would gather to share their own stories of sobriety. And I recognized that much of the power behind it was not necessarily in their ability to abstain from something, but their ability to be profoundly honest about where they're at. And it was in their honesty, recognizing their own vulnerability, 
their own weaknesses that kept them from uh, going down a really bad spiral. So for me, sobriety is not, like you said, Steve, is not necessarily about abstinence. I mean, we are broken, fallen, frail people that are going to have good days and have bad days. But if we can live from a place of honesty, that's why I talk about finding sobriety communities where we could open ourselves up to others, which, and, and naming, I think it's in that chapter. So I forget where I'm writing things now, Steve. Yeah, I know, yeah. Where I, I think I talk about just being able to name something and our, our inability to name, you know, much like in the Harry Potter series, they couldn't say the name Voldemort because it, it caused too much angst and fear. Our ability to name things in our lives has so much power uh, for the purpose of sobriety. And if we can get honest about naming some of the things that have had strongholds in our lives, I think we're going to move towards greater wholeness. And we all know people who have abstained and still are still caught in yeah. some other patterns of behavior. So that's what I'm hopefully, you know, hopefully trying to do with sobriety here. Yeah, I really love that. Rich, you have the unfortunate uh, distinction, uh, Chuck had to face this as well, of not just being a returning guest, therefore requiring a fresh gauntlet, <laughs> but you're also an emotional health veteran. So here are the season five questions. If you are ready to brace yourself like a man <laughs> and uh, receive the gauntlet of anxiety questions. My knees are shaking here. I know, I can tell even now you're, uh, you're trying to flee. <laughs> All right. One of the things I've noticed in leadership is, is you work on yourself, you make some breakthroughs, and then time happens. And then you start running into yourself again. Like there's, there's another trait that you're like, man, here I am all these years in, and I'm still doing blank. What's the blank for you? The blank for me is finding myself in the hole whenever conflict arises. There are times where I think, you know what, I, I got this. You know, I, I'm, I'm able to navigate through difficult conversations. Um, but whenever conflict or criticism comes my way, I've been amazed at how easily I return to the whole. That's the phrase that therapists help me to just name in which I am looking inward and I can't, I have no vision of anything else. So uh, criticism and conflict Getting me in a hole has been, I just thought, man, I, sh I thought I'd be done with this. Yeah, I uh, thought I'd be further along by now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, oh, that's really good. When you fall short in whatever way, leadership or your own set of standards, and your inner critic starts chatting to you, could you give us an example of what it's telling you about yourself? I put a lot of stock in my competence, Steve. Um, and so whenever I'm wounded, the first thing that comes to mind is you're not competent. You're not capable. My whole sense of self is delegitimized. De and so uh, why shouldn't I have known that already? And so for someone like me who takes pride in the positive and negative way of just knowing my when my incompetence comes to the surface, that's probably the area where my inner critic just harps on over and over again. You're, you're not, it's always enough. You're not smart enough. You're not competent enough. You'll never be that. So that's, those are the, in, the internal messages that I wrestle with uh, from time to time. Yeah. Do you have a practice that helps either quiet the inner critic or 
tell it to go take a hike? Yeah, you know, there is a a five-step process that I use that I outline it in the book where whenever uh, there's a disproportionate reaction in me or anxiety is surfacing, I've gone to this five-question point of reflection, which uh, at one point, Steve, in 2018, November, I, I did feel like demons were coming out of me when I did this, believe it or not. I was journaling and I felt like there was a deliverance that took place in me. And I, I asked five questions whenever there's a disproportionate reaction or anxiety. It's what happened? What am I feeling? What's the story I'm telling myself? What's the gospel say? What's the counterinstinctual act that's required? And I remember they were, I, I remember getting criticized, not in public, but uh, from a well-known national leader in the church. And uh, this person criticized something that I had said, and it was gracious. It was, but but just reading it, I felt so much shame, and embarrassment, and anger, you know. And I had been doing these five question reflections during that season, and this is how it played out for me. What happened? A well-known leader criticized me. What am I feeling? Deep shame. What's the story I'm telling myself? I will never be competent. What's the gospel say? God uses incompetent people. <laughs> uh, what's the counterinstinctual act that's required? For me, it was letting someone in, and in particular, my wife. And so as opposed to me going into the hole saying, yeah. Rosie, I'm feeling deep shame today. This is yeah. what someone said. Can I just talk this out loud with you? And it was amazing how the the hole got a lot shallower. I didn't go as deep, but uh, that's how I have typically, and I've had to do that a couple of times during this pandemic, uh, especially when difficult moments have come up which in which anxiety was really surfacing in my life. That's a stunningly beautiful answer. Since since my book came out, I've been doing a lot of work specifically on the inner critic. That's what I keep running into when I'm working with faith leaders. Mm-hmm. What struck me most was when you you almost didn't want to tell me that you felt like it was a deliverance. Mm. I've come to believe that this is how spiritual warfare shows up in the Western culture mm. is through the inner critic. Wow. Because we elevate what our inner critic says over what God says. And you've just laid out this five-step process to let the gospel infect mm. that word. It's so beautiful. I love that. See, I mean, please write about that. That's a, that sounds phenomenal. Yeah, I'm actually working on a tool right now um, of helping people notice the adjectives. Mm. That's what I'm working I think your five-step process, I'm going to have to really chew on that. It, what I do is I get people into groups get them in a place where they can share the inner critic because it is vulnerable. And then their friends write down the adjectives they heard. Wow. And it's like unrelenting, unforgiving, mm. you know, and then we open scripture like, like it sounds like you did, but boy, I, I hope people try this because I do think uh, comparing it to the gospel and the externalization you bringing in Rosie, mm-hmm. that incredible vulnerability, you know, of saying I need help. That's, ah, that's beautiful. Mm. All right, then I'm, I'm going to skip a question for the sake of time. We have two more. I believe you're going to make it. Um, <laughs> one of the things I've noticed lately, Rich, is so many faith leaders experience a gap between what we believe about God and what we tell others about God versus what we experience from God ourselves. And the gap seems to be, I believe God loves me, but I don't feel it. I believe God's with me, but I don't see it. I think I should be further along by now. Yeah. Is there one of those that grabs you the most? Uh, in this season, uh, if you would have asked me that question um, last year, I probably would have said the third one. 
I should I should be further along by now. Since my book came out, it's really the first one. I really believe that God loves me unconditionally beyond anything I could accomplish. What I have found myself being very anxious about is how successful is my book going to be? And I remember <laughs> uh, journaling the day before the book launched. And my, my, I have my journal right here uh, next to me. And I have this whole wonderful long entry on, Lord, do whatever you want with the book. I'm not going to focus on <laughs> sales and focus on what people think and how many people are talking about it. Lord, do whatever you want to do. And, and when I closed the book, you know, I started going on Twitter. Let me see what people are saying about, you know, right yeah. my book here. Uh, and so I believe that God loves me, you know, uh, beyond whatever I can accomplish. Um, but I have found myself struggling to really believe that, uh, in particular with the book, is this book going to be as successful as I hoped it would be? Uh, my, I don't know, uh, but I found myself wondering about it, I think, a bit too much. So I think for me, that's the gap that I find myself in this season. Yeah. Give us something in COVID season, a surprising way you felt fully loved or a surprising life-giving activity that you've done during COVID. I think it's been uh, the lots of extra time cuddling with my children that I have found a sense of just profound love in. I'm a toucher to begin with, so that physical touch is one of my primary ways of giving and receiving love. Uh, just having my, you know, they're home in school all the time. You know, they're doing school from home. So we've had a lot of time being together. And just the physical proximity and having much more time with them to cuddle and all that has been a gift to me. Uh, the homeschooling has been a mess, but the yeah. <laughs> but the cuddles have been a gift. <laughs> oh, that's great. Oh, Rich, what a, what a treat. I I just, you were kind enough to send me the book. Uh, it's it's so good. I, I'm just going to put a final plea. And for my listeners who have listened for a while, you know I don't do this. I'm I'm pretty reticent to tell people to go buy something. But I do think this is the book we need for this time to to really grapple with all of the forces that are going on in our culture and all that's going on inside of us. Um, I think most of you already know Rich, but if you don't, uh, just follow him on Twitter. He also writes for Missio Alliance. And uh, and get in touch. Rich is someone worth learning from. Rich, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and, and share your heart with us. Thanks, Steve. This has been great. For more resources, visit stevecuswords.com or missioalliance.org.